Welcome to the B2B Thought Leadership Podcast, where it's our job to share insights on how you can become the thought leader in your niche. I'm your host, Alejandro Sanoja, founder and digital strategist at Latin Presarios, and today our guest is Ben Armenta. Ben is an experienced business and IT consultant in the greater Houston area. Since the early 2000s, he has worked to help organizations face the toughest challenges head on. Along with having led many large scale complex system projects, Ben has designed and led behavioral change strategies to drive step change improvements for organizational effectiveness and enabling better customer experiences. Ben guided numerous growth initiatives, business process transformation, and change management efforts, promoting user adoption on both technology and business process engagement. He has operated as a local managing executive, successfully building practices and focusing multidisciplinary teams to achieve shared outcomes. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Alejandro. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. Ben, how is it that a teacher ends up an Accenture. <laughs> How is it that a, that a teacher ends up there? Um, you know, for anybody that knows me, I am not afraid to take risks. And I'm not afraid to listen to the advice of others. Um, I've always had a passion for working with people. And if you, if you think about um, the, the different jobs and steps I've had in my career path, whether it's working in public education, um, whether I, I was a, a firefighter at, at one point, um, I, I worked in a wide range of jobs and, and professions. Uh, I waited tables. Um, I did a lot of different things, but they all involved working and helping with people. Um, they all involved solving problems. Um, most of them involved solving very high stress problems. And uh, along the way, I met some uh, business individuals and folks who were in consulting who just kept planting the seed over time that that might be a good fit for me. And so when the stars aligned with my personal life and uh, my professional aspirations, I decided to, to make that jump and uh, ended up beginning my consulting career at Accenture and uh, loved every minute of it, learned a ton, and I'm very appreciative for that experience. What do you think is it that these people that guided you and planted the seeds saw in you? What do you think were those skills or those attitudes or what is it that made them think that you could be a good consultant? You know, the best consultants um, have a handful of, of consistent traits. And it doesn't matter if they're in IT consulting or strategy consulting or maybe even in other professional services. I think those types of individuals have a high attention to detail. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very outcome focused and less so about themselves, more so about who it is that they're working for. What, you know, it's somebody else's problem or challenge that if they could have solved it before they would have, but they're bringing you in for a reason. And so, you know, I think 
I demonstrated over time, collaboration, finding clarity when in the midst of ambiguity and complexity, you know, breaking things down into simple, uh, digestible, manageable steps. Uh, and uh, really, if, if anybody who has a job and if they're able to do those kinds of things, design a new process, find a different way of a more efficient way of, of uh, solving a, a problem. And those are all consulting skills. And I, I think some of those individuals saw that I was doing that in my current roles and, and positions over time. And, and they were like, you know what, we could use some of that over in, in consulting and you could apply those skills with different businesses over time. Um, you know, I love change. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. Now, I don't like change for the sake of it, but I do like new experiences, new different industries, uh, different size organizations, uh, different, um, you know, geopolitical and environmental stressors. And getting into consulting allowed me to sort of dip my toe in a wide variety of environments. Uh, and so that was, that was attractive to me and, and certainly something that, that I've enjoyed uh, having been in consulting now for, for quite a while. Absolutely true, Ben. And so if we were thinking about the typical consultant, right? I think there's this idea that if you want to be a consultant, you go to a top school, you get good grades, you go into one of these consulting companies, then you go back, do an MBA, and then you keep growing on, on that path, right? And if we look at your career, is the typical elements that you would think that a consultant has to have might not be all there. Do you think this is the case that you're just, you're not a liar and the majority of people follow the typical path? Or when you were in, the, in that career, did you find that there's actually a lot more people that don't follow the so-called traditional path to consulting. Certainly the latter. Uh, you, as you get into consulting, you realize that there are numerous paths to, to get into consulting. And the traditional path of uh, going to business school, uh, maybe eventually getting your MBA, uh, doing some strategy work. Uh, that's a great path. And you, you can learn a lot. And a lot of people have been successful with it. But when you go to consulting firms and you really get to, to know their people and their background, the best consulting firms have built a, a pool of resources that are very diverse. Mm -hmm. uh, one, of, one of the best consultants I ever worked with began his career as an attorney and uh, eventually got involved in uh, you know, business and commercial litigation, got connected with, with businesses and realized that he could use those skills differently, but still interpersonal skills, still problem solving, still working under time pressures. Um, and he's, um, he's a great consultant and now, uh, now partner with, with Accenture. So you know, for, I have spent quite a bit of time over the years mentoring others mm -hmm. who have wanted to get in, into consulting. Uh, they've been maybe operators in oil and gas or 
maybe they were, they've also been in um, public ed education and they have aspirations to, to make, to make a move and you have to be thoughtful and strategic on how to get there. Um, number one, you have to have a network. You have mm -hmm. to know people who are in consulting, uh, who can mentor you and give you ideas and thoughts. Uh, number two, you can't be afraid of hearing no, because you'll hear no a lot. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, you'll apply at one firm and they'll say no for whatever reason. You didn't go to the right school or you, know, you don't have enough experience or uh, you just have an undergraduate degree. And you know, you, you're just not what they're looking for in that moment. And as you develop a, a way of articulating how you've already been working as a consultant, how the things you've already have been doing really has been consulting. And as you refine that narrative, then you're able to represent yourself as already a consultant, just looking to join firm X or firm Y. And, and that's when you, you start to see people being able to make that, that jump and that transition. So, um, you know, you just have to be listening and ready for when that door to opens, you know, when it opens up and then you step in. So I, I think there's a lot of paths to becoming a consultant and I'm an advocate for people if, if they want to get into it, that they don't shy away from taking the risk, networking, and uh, and starting that that journey. It's not going to happen overnight, but it's it's totally doable. So many great points that I want to follow up on, Ben. So you mentioned the ability to getting people to tell you no and keep moving forward. At the very beginning, we also talk about taking risk. That you're not afraid of, of taking risk, and I think that. For entrepreneurs, usually that risk is what other people perceive it. But for us, it's more of, um, yeah, I know it's not a sure thing, but I have the confidence that I'm going to do it. I, mm -hmm. It's funny. I have conversations with my wife about projections or what we're going to do. And she's like, well, but you never know if clients leave or you never know if you're going to find more clients. And in my head, I'm like, well, I've done this several times from zero to six figures. And now I just trust that I'll figure a way, right? Like I'm not absolutely sure that there's, that this is going to be the way, but I'm absolutely sure that I'll find a way. So when you think about risk, let's go back to those decisions, those embracing risk. Is it, a, is it just like, hey, I want to do this and, and this is how I'm going to do it. Like when you say, hey, you're going to have to take a risk when you make that career change. How do you go about understanding what the risk is and I guess assessing how comfortable you are with that risk. Let's say if you were going to do a career change, if you're going to make an investment, if you're going to make a hire, there's risk in all of decisions. How do you mm -hmm. assess it and, and how do you understand your level of, of comfort with in each of those cases? So I think everybody needs you know, to your question they need to define for themselves what tolerances they have um, and stay true to themselves i come across a lot of individuals who might be very analytical and 
and they need a lot of detail um, and a lot of data to get comfortable with the risk. Mm-hmm. And then I come across other individuals who are much more visionary. And so they need some imagery and, a, and a, a clear picture of what the future might look like. It's not right or wrong. Bo- mm-hmm. Both are both are fine. What you need to do though, is ensure that you stay true to yourself. And if you're the analytical type, get the data, get the information you need to get, to get comfortable, do the research. If you're the visionary type, get the whiteboard, spend time up there, create, uh, articulate the the vision. Personally, for me, I kind of fall somewhere in the middle and the litmus test tends to be what is the worst case scenario and am I okay with handling the worst case scenario? So if the worst case scenario is uh, six months into the job, I'm an absolute failure and I need to go look for another job. Am I okay doing that? Mm-hmm. Am I you know, on the personal side, on the professional side? Can, can I handle that? Uh, if, I'm, if I'm making a hire and they are an atypical type person, uh, they don't necessarily have the education or the background that I would be looking for, but there's something there, right? Maybe some grit or some attitude or, you know, a high degree of coachability. And I, I, you know, it's, it's a risk to bring, bring them in. Well, is the worst, is the worst case scenario that they need to exit the company in a few months and I need to bring somebody else in or is the worst case scenario, am I putting a multi-million dollar project on their shoulders and I could potentially lose a client? I, I think about the worst case scenario and if I have a continuity plan in place uh, and I'm comfortable with it, then I make the decision. I'm usually pretty fast at assessing those things. Um, and which means, you know, in life I've had different failures. I've made wrong choices uh, along the way. And those are just learning moments that have helped me become successful over time. But um I, I feel sometimes that, um, you know, d- perfection is definitely the enemy of progress. Mm-hmm. And I try to figure out what is good enough, thread the needle and keep going, keep going, keep going. And that typically leads to more opportunities, more growth, um, more ideas. And that's just kind of where my risk profile is is at personally and do you think that tolerance that you have with risk because you mentioned something about like failing and getting comfortable with it and, and making decisions fast and do you think that comes from failing overcoming it and being confident that you're going to find a way or has that been always like that for you because i think a lot of that comes to fear a lot of people fear making mistakes because of the criticism and all these other components that don't let them move forward. And they say that they just wanted to be perfect. But I think sometimes that's an excuse of this fear of being criticized. And it seems that you don't have that fear that you trust yourself. And that if you think you assessed it, you think it's a good decision, I'm going to move forward, knowing that if it goes wrong, I'll take ownership of that. And I'll learn something. 
do you think this is something that you've cultivated or, or if you look back, is this something that you always kind of had in you? Definitely cultivated. It, it, it takes, it takes work. The other day I was in the car with my son and um, I can't remember what the start of the conversation was, but he asked me what my greatest fear was. And I told him embarrassment. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's the truth. You know, my, my greatest fear is um, taking a risk, putting my brand on the line, um, sharing what's on my heart or whatever, and people judging that. But I have found and learned over time that the more that I am genuine and authentic, the more that people respond with authenticity as well. And even if that means criticism, I've survived. Mm -hmm. I'm a survivor, right? It's okay. I'm, I'm stronger. Uh, the moment might suck, but the journey is great. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, yes, I mean, I think it's natural for people to be uh, afraid, uh, afraid of what their family might think of them if they go and start a business or do something and it fails, um, afraid of, of uh, you know, what if I take this job change and it doesn't work out? Am I going to be able to go back to doing what I did before? Um, afraid of, um, am I going to be able to look my kids in the eyes and say that, you know, I, I tried this and it didn't work out. Uh, but risk also creates a bit of, of respect. You know, I respect people who, who have um, faced fears and failures head on. Um, and I personally feel a sense of commitment to those who, who have failed and want to help them and want them to be successful. Uh, yeah, as a, as a small business owner now, there's a great sense of pride in, in business owners helping other business owners. It's, it's uh, hey, I've got this idea, or I've got this lesson learned and you know, how can I share or make a connection for you? And, um, and, and I think that's human nature. We're all, we all wanna help others. It feels good when you help others. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think just life experiences have led me to a place of being okay that things might not be okay. Mm -hmm. And I've surrounded myself with people that care about me, faith, um, and, um, you know, those, those things will get me through, um, through a lot. And, and I think if, if the more that people approach it like that, I think, the easier it will be to, to overcome and face those challenges and those fears. So you mentioned that it's something that you've built, right? Like getting comfortable with uncomfortable so that you can, you can face these fears and these challenges. If you were, and I asked this, like the question is if you were to set up a course, right? Like if you, you were professor of uh, being comfortable with discomfort, um, what would you say are the, what would that curriculum look like? And I ask because um, I, I read a lot of Stoicism and Epictetus talks a lot about that in terms of being comfortable, even with, he says, 
how would you react if your your wife and kid dies? And, if, and he takes it to the extreme, right? And he says, you should not react. And you got to start small. He says, what happens when you um, spill a little bit of wine? Do you react or not? That's, a, that, that's how you start, right? And then slowly you build up to facing death, your death or death of others around you without reacting because that's a natural process. So if we were to put you at a, at a university and we're going to teach this, which I think it's one of the most important skills you can have, and you're going to be professor of getting comfortable with discomfort, what do you think would be, I don't know, the exercises, the courses, the books, how would you structure that course? You know, it probably would have a combination of several exercises. I think uh, pushing, pushing the students to face a significant fear and to think about not reacting so much in the, in the moment uh, would be a part of it. Uh, I think that there's learning how to be proactive mm -hmm. instead of being reactive. Your, your greatest fears are often not realized when you plan ahead and you think of contingency plans and you don't put all your eggs in, in one basket. Um, your, I think another exercise that's very worthwhile is guiding others, right? This idea that, um, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the skills any teacher uses in the classroom is having a student teach back the, the lesson mm -hmm. or to teach their mm -hmm. peers. The same kind of applies in business. I've been very fortunate as a consultant to have the opportunity to provide counsel and advice and to look at, at other people's challenges and situations. Well, in doing that, I've been able to then apply some of those lessons and experiences to my own business and to my own challenges. And so then those fears, I've got experience to draw on in facing, facing those fears. So in a course like that, to allow them an opportunity to guide others and to coach others and to provide a, a different perspective can give them the opportunity when then they're faced with that kind of fear to take a step back and say, okay, how would somebody else look at this situation? What's a different perspective than just my lens mm -hmm. on this, mm -hmm. on this situation? So, you know, a combination of all those probably coming, coming together in, in a course. Let's keep talking about fear. We talked already about your transition from teacher to Accenture. And of course, there, there were some risks in, in that transition. But then there's another big transition because you were in Accenture, then you were at Credera, you were managing principal. So if you think about it, you made it in, in that career progression. And then you make the decision of starting your own business. How, how did that happen? And how did you manage? Because I'm sure at that point, maybe some people said that you were doing the wrong thing. Why would you leave? A, this such a great career behind and, and start something that other people might perceive as risky. Would you walk us through the thought process of like why making that decision and how do you handle the noise that often happens to entrepreneurs and, and people 
taking these so-called risks from everybody else's perspective? Some of the decisions uh, I've made in my life have really been under the guise of the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll tell you a story before I answer that specific example. So I moved with my wife to Ohio uh, for her job. And so I was then between jobs and um, I would, yeah, I sort of unpacked the house and got things organized. And after about a week or two, she was like, you know, you need to go get a job. You can't just play golf all day. And I was like, okay, all right. But I, I didn't know what my next like real grown up job was going to be. So um, I, took a, I took a job just temporarily get out of the house with uh, Panera. And so I was working at uh, Panera Bread and I was, I'd show up at the point in time that the overnight bakers were done right? They were done. They could, and so I showed up at like 6 a.m. They were done. And uh, there was some staff that would do the breakfast stuff. And my job was to prep lunch. So between 6 and 11, um, you know, making soups and getting the salad stuff ready and doing all that stuff just in the kitchen. And that, that Panera had a co-op uh, agreement with a local high school. Mm -hmm. And so sometime around 10 o'clock, the, uh, those students would show up and they would start to work and they would whatever, right. Get ready for lunch and serve the lunch stuff and all that kind of stuff. And so there was an overlap and, um, they were not all that fun to work with. They, mm -hmm. uh, and they, you know, were just where they're at in their life stage um, and they didn't really have a whole lot of respect for the individuals that worked in the, in the kitchen that, uh, did all that work. And, um, uh, one day without having a plan of what next, I just said, I'm done. And I went to the manager and was like, I'm out of here. See ya. And ultimately that decision was not based on because I had another job lined up and I had other income and I had um, a plan in place. And, you know, now I'm going to go, you know, have a, have a bigger, you know, more important role or a job. I had just faced weeks and weeks and weeks and months of not being happy. Mm -hmm. Like that was it. That mm -hmm. was it. Like mm -hmm. I, I, like I, I didn't want to be treated like that at work. So I made that decision. Well, my job was great at Cordera. I loved it. I loved the people. I loved the work I was doing. But there was an opportunity to have greater ownership and to create something from scratch. And so in that instance, it was less about what I was leaving and more about the opportunity to create. And the fact that that would give me unbelievable joy. And so there have been these moments in my career where it was, you know, the, I faced these decisions 
Um, I made them quickly. Um, I didn't have all the data or all the facts or all the vision, but I knew that if I made that decision, I would be happy. And that was enough. And that was enough for me. So, so yeah, I had a great, awesome career at Accenture. I learned a ton at Cradera as well. The opportunity to run a PNL, uh, to you know, have a, a practice in Houston, um, to you know, help grow that company. Uh, some of my you know great dear friends are, are still there. It's a fantastic firm. Um, but I asked myself, what would it be like if I could create something in? In a, in a vision that I would birth and, and with, with the people that would buy into that vision and that idea, um, how, how awesome and fun would that, would that even feel like work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the answer was, it wouldn't feel like work at all. And that would be a ton of fun. So I made the decision and um, that's, that's how I was able to, uh, leave Cordera and, and start my own, my own business and become an entrepreneur. So many great points, Ben. And you mentioned something uh, critical. I, I've just been reading this book that the Dalai Lama wrote with a psychologist and you mentioned um, happiness, right? Which is usually a word that not a lot of leaders and business people and, and high achievers use, right? Like goals and we got to do this, but not all people optimize for happiness. And he mentions in the book that this is something that you have to work on. You don't just arrive at a happy life. You have to define what a happy life is for you and work towards that. And so far in the conversation with everything you've said, it's, it's clear that you have a good intuition that you've worked on it and that you listen to it when you're making these decisions. There's a lot of people in life that don't do so. So if somebody, mm-hmm. and I think that makes them unhappy. And of course you have to develop that intuition, right? Cause if, like you said, the high school kids, your intuition when you're in high school might not be the best and maybe mm-hmm. you shouldn't listen to it at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so more or less typical, same question that we asked before about the class, if you were in, and I'm sure you've done this with the people you've mentored. If you would be mentoring somebody on two things, number one, how to develop that intuition and optimize it for your own happiness. And then um, number two, how to listen to it, how to know when is intuition speaking to you and when it's just noise. Um, how would you go about it? Um. That's a, that's a really good question. The, you're right. Listening to it is the key because a lot of people hear it. Uh, they'll hear their gut, but will they even act on it? And you might not always. And oftentimes you'll have regret. I I've done my best over the years to really avoid regrets and maybe maybe with that mindset, it has steered me towards um, greater risk tolerance. 
is uh, maybe a little bit of a fear of, of regret. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think it kind of a, a healthy fear, but the, the need to listen to the small things uh, and to, um, and, and to not ignore them builds sort of that capability o- over time. So I, I once had a client, um, she was pretty senior, ran a very large HR organization. And I was a mid-level sort of manager type consultant. Um, so I was right at that point where I was a pretty good consultant, uh, but I also kind of thought I knew a lot and maybe didn't. And she, she was building a org chart for a steering committee presentation she had at a very senior level. And she had two versions of the org chart. And she called me into her office and she said, okay, you know, Ben, here's option A. And here's why I'm looking at option A. And here's option B. And here's why I'm looking at option B. And she says, what do you think? And I gave her total consultant BS. I said, well, you know, option A, I could, I could see why you would do that. You know, that like, I mean, that makes good. Uh, option B, oh, that makes really great sense too. Hey, you can't go wrong with either one. And she goes, I am paying a ton of money for you to have an opinion. So you better have an opinion. Mm-hmm. And, and she was right. And, and there was a, a bit of, you know, fear there in not listening to, to my gut and taking action. And just, you know, those things are connected, right? I did have an opinion. I did have an idea on which one, but instead of, instead of facing that fear and putting a stake in the ground and saying, hey, I think it's A, and here's why. What I listened to was, well, what if she judges me and says that that's wrong and she goes with the other one? I mean, that ultimately she needed a sounding board. She needed a different perspective and I didn't offer that to her. So, so I think it, it's those little micro moments a, along the way that you have to, to listen to so that when the big moments arise, you have the courage. Um, and, and you, and your willingness to, to, to stick to your guns, to stick to your gut and that's okay. And you know what, when you stick to your guns and you, and you listen to your gut, it's defendable whether, and it's okay. If people disagree with you, at least you have an opinion that you believe in and you can defend and you can articulate, even if the client or the customer or whomever goes a different direction, you can believe that you're standing on solid ground. And that's ultimately what matters most. So, you know, building those, you know, those skills with those micro moments. Uh, I, at home, I can be a bit amiable. You know, we'll get in the car and we'll go, we're going to go out to eat and be like, well, where do you guys want to go eat? And you know, my wife might say, well, let's go do pizza. My daughter might say, let's go sushi. And my son might say, well, let's go do Mexican. And they'll look at me and be like, well, what do you want, dad? And I'll be like, um, whatever y'all want. Well, 
sometimes it's good just in those moments to just pick, make a, make a decision. Like mm-hmm. what, what you, you do have an opinion. You, mm-hmm. you, you do, I do have an idea of what I want to eat. Go ahead and declare it. And then work as a family, work as a team, work as a business to figure out the best solution going, going forward. So I think intuition, gut, risk, fear, there's some connective tissue with, with all of that and learning how to massage and work each of those components um, are, are important. They're important for me. And I think they're important for most entrepreneurs. You make a great point in, in having an opinion and then being able to share it in a way that other people are actually going to, to receive it, right? And, and um, I think there's a fine line between knowing when is it that you need to tell other people what is it that they need to do and, and when is it that they already know, but you just need to guide them. Um, and Tim Ferriss talks about it in his podcast that he has a, a process for it. He has some questions and understands where they are because he says, um, sometimes people ask him about the book and if the book is already close to publishing, why, why give feedback, right? They're not, they're not gonna be able to edit anything. It's, it's, it's kind of like a closed game where it's already done. Why say something that's not as good as it could be? Maybe just compliment them. There's, there's not gonna be any big changes, but if they're in manuscript point, yes, of, like let's, let me give you all my feedback so you can take as much as, as you want because I know you can act on it. And I don't remember exactly, but he had kind of like a, an idea of how to assess that. In, in your experience, do you have any, and I'm sure, of course, it happens with experience and, and a lot of it is intuition and in the moment, but do you have any, any rules of thumb or anything that helps you make a decision of how, of how is it that I'm going to share my opinion should I share my opinion or, or how do I give feedback and advice to this person to achieve the best possible result? I, any client of mine will, will say that I talk a lot about success factors and what does success look like? And I am obsessively evaluating that all the time. So if I am on a new, on a project and it's my first week there and the pro- the project's been going on for a year. Uh, if I blurt out all these things that they could or should be doing differently, is that going to help in the moment them get funding for their next phase uh, two weeks from that day? Probably not, right? Mm-hmm. So. But so how could I be helpful? How could I help them achieve success in the near term, not just in the long term? Uh, And also understanding what are my contributions in in the moment? Uh, Am I there to tell them more about their company or their business or their industry? No. Very rarely am I ever in that kind of situation. Um, And when I am, it's typically actually just for me to share how are others like them elsewhere, perhaps handling these types of challenges. But it's, it's about a different perspective. It's about a different idea. So just 
understanding how can I be the most relevant? If I share something, is that leading them towards achieving some measure of, of success? Uh, I only achieve success after the customer or the client achieves success, not the other way around. So when I see uh, you know, junior consultants or young entrepreneurs uh, right out of the gate, just declare all their knowledge on that. That's for their benefit, not, not for the clients or the customer's benefit. So the more empathy that they can show uh, and appreciation and, and take the time to sort of walk a mile in their client's shoes, the more successful they'll be. That's ultimately what it, what it comes down to. Uh, be empathetic, um, be kind-hearted as you are sharing feedback. Yeah, I, uh, all of my clients will also say that I don't shy away from telling them what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that that is every moment, every time. Um, and that's not always appropriate either. Sometimes a client needs somebody that can listen. Sometimes a client needs uh, somebody that can make a connection with somebody else. Uh, so just understanding what is my role, how I can be relevant, that's the first step. Ben, it's clear that you are a trusted professional. You feel thought leadership, you're respected, people come to you for advice and insights. And based on what you've said so far, I would say there were some elements that were there even at the very beginning. Maybe you didn't have all this knowledge and insights to particular industries or particular businesses, but there were some people that were that saw something in you and that's why they were planting the seeds to, to help you make the transition. And as Steve Jobs said, we can only connect the dots looking backwards. So if you were to, to build a plan, somebody who's starting their career, they want to build thought leadership, they want to be trusted, they want to be respected. What would be those milestones or those steps that you would tell them to take? Well, the, the first thing um, is to be patient and Everybody who has ideas or aspirations um, struggles in some part with patience. Um, that is a huge struggle for me personally. I, uh, I am not a very patient individual. I mean, that, that's, a, <laughs> that's a, uh, a value, a character trait that I have to always work on. Um, but patience is, is a great starting point. The second thing is to surround yourself with individuals or people who are willing to invest in you, who are willing to mentor you, to tell you what you need to hear, uh, to shoot it to you straight. Uh, there's nothing more frustrating than individuals who uh, aren't willing to just tell you, you know, rhetorically speaking that you got food in your teeth, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just, mm -hmm. just tell me what I need to work. I can't become a better professional or a better person. If you don't, if you don't tell me that you, you thought what I said was 
incorrect or I should have delivered it a little differently. Um, I, I need to know, I need to know that information. So a lot of young professionals uh, are hungry and that's great, but are they coachable mm-hmm. and, and coachable mm-hmm. and being coachable doesn't mean willing to say, um, Hey, can you share with me some feedback? It's, it's willing to, to say and ask for that, but then to do something with it and then to follow up and say, am I making improvements? Am, are, you, are you seeing a, a change? Hey, I heard you said X. I'm trying, I'm trying to do some of that. Are you seeing that? What else can I be doing? So having, having those types of men, I've had a lot of mentors in my career. Um, uh, individual, not all of them were supervisors. Uh, yeah, quite a, quite a few of them were just, you know, some of them were clients. Uh, some of them were, um, in other careers and professions, but they could just see, you know, and be a sounding board for me and they could give me a different perspective. So seeking all that out is, is really, really important, um, early on in, 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 in anybody's career, I think if they want to be successful. So patience, mentorship, um, not being afraid of failure, um, all of those uh, definitely come to mind. That's a great point. And you mentioned a while ago that when you were sharing the story about the client that in that point in time, I think you were in a managing position and you thought you knew more than you actually knew. And, <laughs> and now you make that, that comment, right? And to your point of being coachable, do you think that's something that it's a transition that happens at some point in your career and then you're able to grow even faster? And I ask this because I see myself when you were mentioning it, um, I used to, I, I played basketball competitively in, in high school and college. So anytime we had a new coach, um, I remember I used to like, oh, I know this exercise. And I used to like, I don't need to listen to, to these basic things on how to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And then as I grow, as I grew older, Anytime I, I was in front of a new coach um, in weightlifting or anything else, even though I knew the movement, I was like, let me pay attention because they might have a different way. They might teach it in a different way. There's, I'm sure that even if it's the most basic movement, I'm sure there's something I can learn here about how they deliver it, how they explain it. And it was basically totally, the, now I'm looking forward to learning the basics of everything that anybody can teach me, even though I, even though I think I might know, I'm still looking forward to seeing somebody else explaining the, the most basic, basic points. And I think it's Jan Wooden that had, um, that ha- has a quote about teaching people how to tie their shoes. Basically when, when he had the new people come to UCLA and I think he had a record of 10 tournaments in 12 years or something like that, NCAA. And the first lesson he gave them was how to tie their shoes. And of course, all the players would look around thinking that he's crazy. They've been playing basketball their whole life. They're at the highest level. Why would they need to learn how to tie their shoes? You know, and he explains that it's because if you don't tie your shoes right, you're going you're gonna to get um, your feet damaged because of all the uh, friction, right? And then that's going to prevent you from training hard because you're going to have to rest. And then all the potential growth you had, now it's going to be 90 or 80 or something less than 100 just because of that little detail of not 
uh, being able to tie your shoes. So, so going back to your point, right? Like you were at that management position, you thought you knew, and then you realize that you don't. And now you have this open mindset of like, let me always have this approach. Even though I am confident about these things that I know, I'm always going to have an open approach. It, do you think this is something that just people have to go through? And at some point they'll have, I had that moment, you had that moment, other people are going to have that moment. Is that something that just happens and nobody can help you? Or you think there's a way to either through a book or some resource or some course to help people get there maybe a little bit sooner? Well, there's, there's two, two factors in those moments. The first is the willingness of that individual to shoot it to you straight, mm -hmm. right? And to make it very clear on their expectations or their expectations of you and, and where and how you fell short or what you could have done differently. And the, and the second factor is your own personal humility. Mm -hmm. And the business owners who, uh, who face those or consultants who face those moments uh, and approach it with humility, use it as a catalyst for greatness, just like those players learned to tie their shoe the John Wooden way and used it for a catalyst for, for greatness. Um, that's exactly what those moments can be. Or they can be moments of frustration mm -hmm. and um, angst and pent up, um, you know, um, agony and it eats you alive. And now you've got your complete opposite of pursuing happiness and you're going down a path that is not going to lead you to where you, you ultimately want to be. So th those are, are really what, what have to happen. And you make choices in life mm -hmm. and you make conscious choices, whether you think so or not. I mean, you, you do. I mean, I had a choice in that moment. Yes, I was taken aback. But um, my option was I could just wallow away, try to get rolled off that project. I'm not connecting with my client, blah, blah, blah. Or I could show up the next day and be more consultative and uh, exceed her expectations. And that's what I chose to do right? Over, overcome, overcome that. And she stayed a mentor for me for a very long time and continues to be an inspiration for me. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that's just one example of, of many in my career. And, and hopefully the people that listen to this podcast think about that too. Have there been those moments where they've gotten feedback and maybe even if they disagreed with it, did they take a moment, not overreact, just take a moment and listen and think about maybe how they would approach that scenario differently in the future. And if they're willing to do that, then they'll be on a path towards, towards happiness and doing great things in their career for sure. Absolutely. And then of course that, that goes in line with with building that trust, right? Like the more humble you are, the more people are, 
or willing to to listen and ask. And we've we've talked a lot about the substance behind being trusted in and being a thought leader. But there's also the component of of the packaging of that substance, right? And and you mentioned attention to detail. We've been um, we've had a lot of uh, professional interaction. I've seen you present at meetings. Uh, we've had several different calls, several different meetings. You're always on time. Your presentations are well put together. You are always well put together. Would you say this is something that you always had because your attention to detail, or this is something that you've been uh, incorporating in, in just learning maybe from mentors or other people on how is it that you can, yes, work on your substance and in, in, in your thought leadership, but also work on how you package that so, the, so that it's more easily accepted when, when being in front of others? I think it's a combination of both. Um, yeah, I, d depending on what it is I'm working on, that, that will determine uh, how much time I can spend to attention to detail. I've got a lot going on. So, uh, you know, my friends will say that I'm a horrible texter, right? I've got like no punctuation. I'm like, I voice text and I won't auto, I won't correct the autocorrect mistakes. And like, I just, I, I just, I just send it. Um, but those are my friends. That's that mm -hmm. audience. And that's that interaction. Um, that's not, uh, my company or my brand or the work that my colleagues are doing, or, you know, the, the, the brand of my client as they're taking the work I'm doing and sharing it forward or broadly in their organization. And so, um, you know, I certainly was given feedback early on in, in my career on um, how to piece things together, how to build a story. Uh, I've been a bit of a storyteller in, just personally and, and in my career. So, when it comes to, to presentations, I, I rely somewhat um, on that and that comes naturally to me, but anybody can, can hone that skill and, mm -hmm. and can develop it. Uh, any, but, but you got to go back to those things we talked about earlier. Empathy, you know, if I approach it always from my perspective, as opposed to my audience's perspective, I'll miss the mark. Mm -hmm. I have to think about what they need to get from this content or this information, um, how the story needs to build over time. Is it one of those moments where you just rip the Band-Aid off and deliver the punchline up, up front and then give them the details? Or do you, do, you, do you build and build and build and build and then deliver the punchline at the end? It just depends. Mm -hmm. So, um, that takes time. I do a lot of storyboarding in my work. Um, I coach a lot of people uh, who are have big presentations coming up. Okay, how do we build buy-in? How do we build commitment? Um, how do we ensure, like, if your audience left the room and they remembered one key message, what is it? Mm -hmm. Okay, now given that, let's go back and look at all the content and what we're preparing are we preparing the right thing or have we buried the lead somewhere? That takes work. It also takes failure and uh, learning about 
you know, what, what is successful and what isn't successful. Um, authenticity is key. You know, people won't believe you if you're trying to fake it. So be yourself and that goes a long way. Ben, we've talked about so far on what can we do or what should we do to build thought leadership. Now let's take the, the opposite approach and let's talk about what are some of the things that people should avoid. Maybe some experiences you've had that you thought were going to help but didn't. And as an example, I always say that nothing against chambers of commerce, but I remember when I was starting my business, people recommended to join several chambers of commerce. I started going to some events doing some networking. I did some and I realized that that was not the right move at the right time. I think there's a right moment in time in, in your business life cycle that maybe you need to join a chamber of commerce at the very beginning in my case didn't make sense and if you're just starting from scratch i would tell people that there's right like you were saying like you have to optimize i can't like i pay attention to detail but when i'm sending a, a, a message to a friend maybe i'm not as detailed as when i'm i'm doing work for a client so in in, in all of these pieces and things you can do are there some to build thought leadership in your career, be trusted. Are there some that you would recommend people either to completely avoid or are some of the things that you would say, hey, I did it early in my career, maybe it was not needed. I would leave this for later on. Well, I definitely had similar experiences. Uh, yeah, made uh, even, even when, you know, I was at Credera and, you know, trying to build a local practice and a business, you know, making decisions that you think might work, but didn't. When I started Stalwart, a similar deal. I guess my biggest advice is don't put all your eggs in one basket and move quickly on it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sales cures all ills mm -hmm. in businesses and um, sales come when you listen to the market and the customers and you're solving their needs or the needs they didn't know they have, not what it is that you know how to do. Mm -hmm. So whatever activities or things keep you there, keep you centered on the customer, keep you centered on the market and the market conditions so that you are reacting quickly and you're listening and you're solving and you're getting your, your widget, your idea, your service in front of them, the better. And so if you try, you know, a, whatever, right. A chamber or uh, like, man, I, I ran, um, I ran radio ads once and um, it actually worked and was, it was, was really, was really good. And um, but I didn't necessarily know. Uh, and, you know, if it was, if it was going to pan out, and, um, but it did, but that wasn't the only thing I was doing. I was still doing, you know, you know, coffee chats. I was still doing CRM, uh, you know, uh, marketing and, and outreach. I was still doing, um, you know, community events. I was still doing, uh, activities with nonprofits to get it, you know, and sponsorships to get the brand awareness, you know, still doing all those things. And then if something didn't work, don't do it again. Hey, that was, that was a thousand dollars down the drain. Okay. Well, don't do that again this quarter, right? Mm -hmm. Like move quickly. Um, and, 
And probably a headline on all of that is there's no silver bullet. Mm -hmm. So if you're approaching it saying, my business, it's going to thrive. If, if only I could, could sell to 5% of the people that are members of the Greater Houston Partnership, just, just 1% of them, then my business will triple in size. Again, you're not focused on the market. You're not focused on your customers. Uh, you're, you're a hammer looking for a nail and it's not going to work out. So um, try a lot of things. You know, apply apply the adage of fail fast and do that with your your business growth. And then when something works, do some more. Try more of that. See how that continues to uh, to, to play out for you and your business. Uh, but don't be afraid to try to try something new. As you know, businesses have seasons, mm-hmm. and um, as every business owner who was around pre COVID can tell you a lot can change in a hurry or pre winter storm in Texas or pre hurricane Harvey in Houston. I mean, there are disruptions that are out of our control and you can't plan for. So you, you gotta be nimble. You gotta be quick. And so your thought leadership needs to align to that. You gotta be agile, your marketing, your sales approach, your staffing approach, your pricing models, don't be stuck in your ways. Um, you know, if, if once a month, once a quarter, you and your core group of leaders and advisors are asking yourselves, is there a better way we could be doing this? That's a good thing, not a bad thing. And maybe the answer is no. And let's stick with what we're doing. Okay. But let's ask the question, you know, next quarter. And let's ask it the quarter after that. And let's just keep asking ourselves over and over again. That way, when the answer ends up being, yes, we should do something differently, we can act on it quickly and not be too late. I'm curious about the radio. Uh, Was it at a particular station at a particular time? Do you remember the, the, Mm -hmm. the copy? Yeah. Yes. Uh, it was definitely, uh, at a particular, at a particular sta- uh, station. Um, it was, um, on news radio. And okay. so, you know, I mean, uh, my, my firm is B2B selling to, and a lot of, I would say, um, two thirds of our client portfolio over the course of the five years of, you know, owning and running the company have been, small to medium-sized businesses. And so where are those audiences? What are they listening to? Uh, What do they follow? And so uh, a high percentage of them listen to talk radio, sports radio. Um, We didn't do any sports, but definitely news and and talk radio. Um, And it, and it certainly was excellent, right? You know, where, where are our customers? Go, go meet them there. You know, people talk about uh, trade shows. None of, none of our customers are at trade shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't make sense. But depending on people's businesses, that might make sense. Now, there are some businesses who are uh, global 2000 who go to trade shows or go to, you know, big conferences to be seen. 
and uh, to showcase something and to get published. Um, and it might not necessarily be to sign a bunch of POs and to grow their business. Don't try to be them, right? Where are your customers buying at? That's, that's where you want to be. So when, when a small business owner is on her way to work and she's dealing with, um, you know, on, on her mind, she's thinking about some personnel issues that she's got to sort out and how she's going to help, you know, her people learn new software or the fact that she needs a new accounting system because she's just opened up a new office in San Antonio uh, you know, when our ad came on and our endorsement, and it talks about how those are the things that our company helps businesses solve. Fantastic. I, I was at where she was at. Um, she get to her office, she called the number or hit our website. And so that made sense for us, especially in that, in that sort of season we were at with our business. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it depends on the arena you're playing at, right? Mm -hmm. I, I tell people that it's, if you play basketball and you go to 24 hour fitness every once in a while, maybe you need a couple of shoes and that's it. But if you play in a league, maybe you need a couple of shoes and maybe some ice packs or something for being ready for the games. And if you play, I don't know, college is a little bit more. And if you play in the NBA, well, you're gonna need trainers and health coaches and, and a lot of different resources to be able to play at that level. So. Uh, I absolutely agree with that, that it depends on your level and you cannot try to be somebody who you're not because it's just going to be wasted resources. If you're a small company, don't try to put a Super Bowl ad because it's not going to provide any ROI for you. Now, Ben, we've talked about what to do, what not to do, risks, and, and many other things on how to build thought leadership. And I know you have a big move, a big career move now that could be also seen as as risky and, and based on everything we've talked about so far, I have absolutely no doubt that it's what your intuition is selling you and it's the right move and, and it's gonna be great. So could you tell us a little bit more about that decision? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've as I've shared with you and your audience, uh, being involved with people has been a huge passion of mine. It's, it's, uh, it's a joy to, to, to mentor others, to help others, to coach other businesses, to help other businesses. Um, and as I've looked at what are those influences that have impacted me personally and impacted my business? Um, what of those are within my control? How can I uh, become a part of those other influences um, to help others? The answer keeps coming back to public service and getting involved in the public and, and uh, political arenas. So uh, I've just recently began exploring the opportunity to running for uh, public office. Uh, it's, it's been in the back of my mind for, for you know, a very long time. And I just happen to be at a point in my you know, in my career, uh, personally, professionally, where this risk is an exciting one for me. And it would be a part of my journey on the pursuit of happiness uh, to get into a, a role 
uh, where my community feels that I can be helpful to them and every day I can work to, to serve them and to make the world that we live in uh, a better place. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, tough challenges, lots of limitations. Uh, doesn't matter what level, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, whether it's local, state, federal, lots of constraints, right on. That's right up my alley. I, I get excited about that. I get excited about assembling the, the, the right teams. Uh, and so uh, I'm currently embarking on forming a, uh, a campaign, um, looking at the right uh, role and opportunity and uh, going all in. And when I do, and when I, and when I jump, it'll be, it'll be all in. I, th I think you probably know that by now. It won't mm. be just a little dabble. It'll be go all in, uh, be fully committed to the outcomes and putting my focus on, on those that I serve. That's definitely where I'm headed and I'm excited to be doing that. You mentioned that this is something you've been thinking for a while. It, was it from the beginning of your career since you were a kid that you had an idea that at some point you would want to be in politics or has this something you've been thinking about lately? And, and I ask because I've been reading about, reading about it, this big encyclopedia basically of the history of civilization and, and it it comes a lot that theme in Greece and in Rome that basically was an expectation, right? Like you apprentice under somebody to learn a craft then you would serve your country and you would be in the military. Then after that, you would go on and to start do business or do some kind of uh, economical activity and learn about that. And then at some point in, I think there were some like age requirements and after a certain time you would serve under this capacity. And then after a certain time you could serve in, in the Senate or, or at higher positions. Um, so it seems more or less that you're going through that route of, of doing a little bit of everything and at each point in your life, following that intuition. So is this something that you plan and you thought about or is it just something that happened lately that you saw that this is what you need to do next? Probably it's been in the back of my mind for a long time. You know, I think that the, uh, the idea of, of uh, working for others and uh, getting in, and not being afraid of um, criticism and, um, you know, not being afraid of a failure uh, were, you know, I think I would say igniters for this passion that, Hey, if it's, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I can't always just be on the sidelines, but when is the right time to say, okay, coach, put me in. I, it's kind of like having a kid. I, I don't know if there ever is a, a perfect time. So it, it I feel like, we're just at a, a point in our country and society where we just need more passionate, honest individuals to step mm -hmm. forward um, who believe in something, uh, whether people disagree with it or not, but they believe in something um, with, and they want good things for their fellow community members. And so 
if I feel like now is the time for us to get that, then I should be a part of that, that solution. So, you know, I, that that's personally where, where I'm at. Yeah. I, I think it is our country and our community and our, um, yeah, the city we live in, it's, it's ready for more leaders like that, ready for more, um, you know, experienced individuals from all different backgrounds. You know, the, the story you shared there about sort of those steps to public service, that's one path, not a bad one. I can make an argument that, you know, we, should, should our voting age actually be uh, an older age in our country where people have had more experiences but, um, you know, I, I think I just feel like I've learned how to be a husband. I've learned how to be a dad. I've learned how to be a business owner. Um, I've learned how to deal with successes and I've learned how to deal with failures. And I'm just the guy next door. But I think it's that next door mentality that we need creating laws and public policy and uh, bringing common sense to um, to our branches of government. So now's the time. Are there any political leaders that you've used as examples of that have inspired you? Any bios that you recommend? Uh, and I ask selfishly because I've been reading a lot lately. I've, I'm not uh, an American and I've been getting so into American history, reading about Lincoln and, and what happened during that time. And I haven't started yet, but I have Grant's bio as well. Um, any leaders or any books, bios in that arena that, that have inspired you or, or that you think would be great resources? Yeah, I'm drawn to statesmen. I'm, I'm drawn to the political leaders that broker understanding and agreements, um, the political leaders that um, you know, don't shy away from the nuances of negotiation and compromise. Uh, so I'm a fan of Stephen F. Austin and the risk he took with uh, you know, building uh, Texas into um, what it is and, and planting the flag here for, uh, for our early residents. Um, I'm a fan of Eisenhower in, at the point in time that he assumed the role of Supreme Commander and he had to uh, get the British and the Canadians and the Americans and everybody to work in concert to, um, uh, to defeat um, the access powers. I mean, that, I mean, that took political astuteness to pull mm -hmm. that off. So uh, it's the statesmanship that I'm typically drawn to in, in those leaders more than, more than anything else. Ben, do you have an idea of when can we hear more about this? Any, any call to actions, any, anything you would like to say to the audience if somebody's listening? Well, I'll, I'll be sharing a lot more uh, over the course of, of this summer in 2021. And um, I will love to hear feedback from, from your audience on just what's important to them 
politically and from their public servants. Um, and I think the more that we learn from each other, the better. So I'll be sharing more. Uh, I'll be maybe I can come back and have a, a second appearance and uh, tell more directly to your audience and, and show them where they can can contribute and give me some great ideas that I could use going forward. But uh, it's going to be a fun. Uh, 2021 uh, and beyond and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it Ben this has been a great conversation and I'll take you up on that I'm, I'll be looking forward to to having another one if that's the case I want to be respectful of your time any any last parting thoughts any last call to actions anything else you'd like to share I think the most important thing is that we're all in this together mm -hmm. and no 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 business owner, no entrepreneur, no uh, consultant, no you know, your dad at home, mom at home. Nobody should feel like they're going at it alone. And over the last year, we've learned how important relationships are, especially when we're made to be distant from those that care about us and we care about them. So Let's look out for each other. If there's anything I can do for any of your audience members, I'm, I'm happy to help them. Um, and I, I'm very glad that you invited me to be a part of, of this podcast. Thank you for here, being here, Ben. Thank you to the audience for being here with us as well. And we'll see you in the next episode.